the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for counterculture. Are you tired of how divided our world has become? We desperately need stories of peace and healing. We find the bridge builders across the globe who are stepping into the divides of culture and bringing understanding, compassion, and reconciliation. And now, here's your hosts, Jonathan Sanborn and Lisa Jernigan. Well, hello. It is always so fun, such a pleasure, and such an honor to sit around a table with you, Jonathan. Oh, stop. I know, right? Uh, good thing <laughs> I didn't just eat. I would be nauseous. No, but you know what? Seriously. You're blowing. So, so I'm Lisa, smoke. and you are? Jonathan. I know. Seriously. It is fun. It is. All it right. is fun to come around and, and uh, just get to talk, and we never know where the conversation is going to go. You know, we don't. I mean, it's, we have an idea. We start, an idea. and then it kind of goes, and that's what's so fun about it, right? Yeah. It's not predictable. Yeah. And we always have amazing guests that take us places to lands far, far away. Far away. Yeah. Or nearby. Or nearby, right? Whatever. That's and right. our guest today is going to do the same thing. But before we get into introducing our guests into the show... I want to ask a couple of questions. So Uh-oh. sitting across the table from Jonathan and I is Pastor Andrew Cunningham with Southgate Church. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But so this is for both of you guys. Okay. Because we're going to talk today a little bit about how do we see our community? How do we see okay. Phoenix, the Phoenix area, metropolitan area? So first of all, Jonathan, how long have you lived in the Valley? Except for a few years since 89. Okay. Yeah. So that's that's a lot of years. Right. That's 30, uh, on, over 30 years a to- okay. uh, total. And Pastor Andrew, how long? Uh, 1987. Okay. 87. And I was born and raised here. So wow. we've got, we've got wow. three of us that have been here for quite a while, mm-hmm. which means we've seen a lot of changes Absolutely. in our community and on many levels. Yep. So first of all, the first question I want to ask you, what do you think the population of the Phoenix metro area is today? Any guesses? I Phoenix. I get Maricopa County and Phoenix Metro mixed up. Okay, so I know they're they're not the same, but I I think about four point five. I was going to say four or five million. You guys have been researching. Is oh, that right? Yes, it is. That's so. Ding 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 ding. I'll to give it to you. Okay, so let's let's look at Phoenix through the through the decades. We're just going to okay. do a couple of them. Nineteen fifty. What do you think Ooh. the population in Phoenix was? Hundred thousand. Uh, yeah, I was. That's. I would have said about the same thing. Maybe I'll say a hundred. I'll say two hundred thousand. You're close. Two hundred twenty-one thousand. Wow. Wow. Okay, so let's jump to 1970. Okay. I think when did air? I know air conditioning made a huge difference oh, in the I growth. I think of that Phoenix. was in the. I think that was in the end of the 60s. I just watched a video on that the other okay. day. Okay. I can't remember when, but that that changed the landscape here in Arizona. It did. Oh yeah, I'm it sure. Did. Yeah. Okay, so 1970. What do we think the population was? I say Is that the whole area? Uh, from Phoenix Metro. Oh, I don't know. 600,000. Yeah, I would say that. 874,000. No, not bad. Okay, so we'll go one more. You came in 87, 89. So let's look at 1990. What do you think the population was in 1990, soon after you moved here? 
Well, I was, it was a million and a half, I think, when I got here. Million, yeah. two million maybe. Okay. Yeah, 1.7 million. It could have been with that when you moved here because in, in 1990, it was 2,025,000. Okay. Yeah. So we've gone from 1990, 2,025,000 to 2,000 was almost 3 million to today, 4.5 million. Wow. Rapid change. Right, mm-hmm. we yeah. we're, we're a community that has continued to see growth. Where you look around the country, a lot of communities have declined, right, and mm-hmm. population. So, let's talk about um, just what we've seen in Phoenix, because I know I've seen so many. I was just seeing on the news the other day they're destroying um, or collapsing Metro Center. Yeah, I remember oh, yeah. growing up young, that was the place, right, and it was the biggest mall on this side of the Mississippi. Really? Yeah, back in the day when it did. And so wow. you just see these major things, right? And then you just see over time things change. And changes can be good and changes can be destructive. It's just mm-hmm. all how we see it. So sitting with us today is Pastor Andrew Cunningham, like I said, from Southgate mm-hmm. Church. And well, you not really – we used to call it South Phoenix, but – Yeah, now, now over the years they want to call it the South Mountain Village – South Mountain Village. Village. But for those of us who have been in the community for all these years, it's still South Phoenix to us who live there. So, yeah. So you come in 1989, 87, you're 89. You come there and tell tell us a little bit about, so what what did you see in the community at that time? Well, the community was farmland, orchards, flower gardens, um, very multiracial, uh, multicultural, even at that time, um, just a lot of different type people living there, all socioeconomic, um, you know, different types of people. But the cool thing was, was it really was filled with some really super nice people mm-hmm. that loved their community, um, had many of these people that I met there had grown up in that community, um, liked the community. And through the years, it, you know, developed a bad reputation. Um, a lot of gang violence was going on at that time where we moved into at 20th Street and Baseline. So we were dealing with, I think, at that time, five gangs within a two-mile radius mm. wow. of the church, which was really interesting. So did you get, like, pushback going, why would you move there? Oh, absolutely. Well, it was kind of a uh, – it was kind of a, an accidental – um, reason why the church ended up there. I, divine, a divine accident. You know, the original starting founders of the church were going to build in Tempe, and then through a course of events, the city wouldn't let them build what they wanted to build in Tempe, so they ended up having to quickly buy some more property. They ended up buying what they considered affordable. At that time, they had to find something affordable with the amount of money they had, so they ended up buying this property from a, a, an orchard uh, landowner in South South Phoenix at that time, and that's how it started. I, I don't know what you thought. Like when, like when I was growing up, South Phoenix was just no, like you said, as a rough area of town, and we have we have a connotation of the East Valley, we have a connotation mm-hmm. of the West Valley, we have a kind con- you know perception of of North Phoenix, right? Right. So it, when you think about all these directions, we have these ideas of what we think they are. And so for somebody to move intentionally into South Phoenix, a lot of people would, would question that. That's rough, that we, we label it, right? Absolutely. Unfairly a lot of times, justly in, in other ways. So as you move in, 
what was that experience like? You're, you're moving into this area that is known to be rough. People probably question, why would you want to go there when these other places? But why did God call you there? That's an interesting how the course of events happened. Uh, <clears throat> the founding pastor had moved there, and uh, I was living in Colorado. I'd just gotten out of the Air Force, and uh, so I was in Colorado maybe for about a year. And through a series of events, I met one guy who had a connection to Phoenix, to the founding pastor, and the guy says to the pastor, here, you need to call this guy. You know, he has hard to serve. So I had a phone conversation with him. He said, one should come out. So I packed up. After one trip out, I met him. I knew this is where God wanted me to come. I didn't know anybody here. It was literally just a complete, total, 100% faith step. Mm. Um, moved out, packed my car, my dog, $100 in my pocket, moved to Arizona, and uh, started really from ground up. I was just the gopher guy did anything and everything that the pastor wanted me to do. And through the years, it just kind of took off after that. Wow. I, I just think, um, you know, when you start, you just never know when God calls you, like, what's it going to look like? You mm-hmm. just, like you said, you take a step and you go, sometimes it doesn't make sense. And you just kind of go. Yep. And then God reveals along the way, step by step, like where he's calling you into. And before you know it, you're leading this community, this church. And I want... Talk to us a little bit about like the demographics because they've changed significantly yes. in the past few years. We're talking about the growth of Phoenix has changed. With growth, it changes a lot of parts of the city. Um, oh, absolutely. So can you just kind of talk to us about the growth you've seen? I think it challenged a lot for a church, especially is how do we stay relevant? How do we still love our community? But how do we, um, how do we adjust and be flexible with changing times? Well, it was uh, in the in the beginning, one of the unique things that we focused on in the community because it was a changeover of the pastor. Um, he went through some, you know, some family issues and just all the financial stuff that was going on. He resigned and then asked me if I would do it. So I ended up taking over the church in the early '90s after a couple years of being here, and that was one of the goals I had was to reach the actual community in which the church was. Mm. Because at that time, we were predominantly probably 95% white. Mm. And the community wasn't. The community was very multicultural. And uh, we had no one, as far as I knew at that time, was attending the church that actually lived in the community. Wow. So my wife and I had gotten married, and I ended up uh, living in an apartment down the street and— um, then later bought a house in the in the community to meet people, to start drawing people from the community. So my whole goal in the beginning was just to build relationships with anybody and everybody that I could come in contact with in the community and start building a reputation for the church. Um, and that was my goal because I didn't really know what to do. I'd never obviously been a pastor. I had no formal training. Grew up in a Christian home, had a lot of Bible knowledge, um, watched my dad interact with people for years, so I knew, you know, a little bit about, you know, interacting with people. Um, And then we just started doing one thing at a time. Um, And here we are, you know, 35 years later, Mm. still doing one thing at a time. (laughs) (laughs) 
that's kind of the key, right? One thing at a One time. One thing at a time. Yeah, we uh, we live where we try to do like several things at a time. I yeah, I'm just I'm a mess. I can't. I can't. I wish I just did one thing at a time. I don't know if I could focus on one thing at a time. Oh, but yeah. But, but you, you've got it right, though. That's the way to do it. And just mm-hmm. my brains too. and build right. Well, and that's you know, with us, there were a couple things that I that I knew that I could do, mm-hmm. and be, meeting people was something I could do. I couldn't fix all the financial issues the church was going through. That was going to be God, mm-hmm. but I could talk to people. I could love the people. I could do the best that I could. And so through the course of those events, we just started focusing in on people. One of the biggest things we focused on was the uh, Christian school. That became a lifeblood for us with all the challenges that the church was going through at that time. In the early 90s, we had ministry going on every single day with the school. So that kept our focus on trying to reach the kids' families. Then we started attracting a few people. It was interesting. I remember the early days, we would lose a person out the door, and then a person from the community would come in the door. Mm. So as people were leaving, because obviously they came there because of the other pastor, not me, and I totally understood that. I wasn't offended by that. Um, And then we just started gradually attracting people from the community into the church, and then it, it began to rapidly change over about five, six-year period of time. The whole demographics shifted. Um, once people found out who we were, mm. the school began to minister to a lot of families in the community, and, and that was miraculous in itself. Mm, for sure, for sure. Well, and just the community transformation, like you said, when you start ministering and serving the community— being in the community, living with them, it changes things because they see that you care. Like you're here living with us. You're not coming in from outside and trying to tell us what to do, but you're with us yeah. in this thing. What is that's? I mean, it's hard to make those shifting. Like, you know, we talk about change and change is, I don't know that change is so hard, but it's a transition of change, right? Like going from here to here can be really difficult. How was that for the community to adapt to, and even the church? It's hard when we see in churches, like, churches have changed a lot even in the past few years with COVID, right? Oh, absolutely. And demographics. We've seen changes, and it's painful. Uh, it, mm. it, it can be really painful, but there can be really beautiful things that happen as a result. What was some of the learning uh, points in that journey for you of embracing change? The realization that it's not going to happen overnight mm-hmm. is hard for people. It's... You know, we live in such a <clears throat> quick, fast, everything's got to happen rapidly that people get frustrated um, with that. They get frustrated with the what I call the waiting in the hallway for door, doors to open up. They don't like sitting in the hallway. But that's where most of the real spiritual work is done mm. is when you're <clears> – <throat> excuse me – when you're sitting in the hallway – and it took it took time through the years to be patient, to watch God bring people in, build relationships with people, watch the community change. And I was telling you when we met the <clears throat> at the at the governor's prayer breakfast that it was interesting how God began to move people from the surrounding areas of Chandler and Tempe 
and they were God was moving people into neighborhoods in the South Mountain area um, by twos. So we would have two people move into an area about a half a mile from the church, and then two more couples would move from one place mm. into an area in the church, I mean in the neighborhood. And then so we gradually began to watch this whole transformation take place, and it was like somebody had strategically planned this. So is this like a Noah's Ark situation? Like yeah, it was, <laughs> I'm being like, it was what's just, going on? Yeah, it was It was like Jesus was himself ascending out two by two to, <laughs> okay. these, to, these, place, to these places. Yes. And I, went, I was sitting there in my office one day, and I was just looking at a map. I had a map of the, of the community, and I was looking at it on the wall, and I'm like, oh, so-and-so and so-and-so lives there, and so-and-so lives there. And I'm going, what is going on here? Mm-hmm. And and it was God just began to move people into the community by twos into, into neighborhoods, and and we saw after a number of years we saw real transformation beginning to happen in our community, and we prayed for that. We our church spent lots of time praying for transformation in the community, um, gang violence, all of these things that were going on in the community. Um, we were praying that God would make a change there, and, and uh, it was amazing to see what happened. And I, I do believe, you know, people want to know how did that happen? Um, how did South Mountain change? I believe that our church was key, mm-hmm. and not me individually, but I believe our church was a light to that community and brought a spirit in that community that allowed it to flourish. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe it. I just – because I got connected to – Different people through the years um, ended up on the village planning committee, talked with the first developer that moved into that area. He came and talked with me, asked me if he thought a development would work in that community. I told him yes. We prayed together in my office that God would bless it. I don't know if the guy was a believer or not a believer, Mm. but he came in and he said, okay, I'm going to do it. So he bought 40 acres across the street from the church. And it literally just busted wide open. And when he did that, it was all the known developers began to move in. And wow. it, yeah, it just it was. So it came from that prayer and conversation. I I, I yeah. do believe that. Wow. Yeah, it was it was just amazing what has happened. Mm-hmm. So something that you're reminding me of it's like the, there's a in in Catholic Church tradition, there's a sense of pa- the parish. Mm-hmm. Like it's a church doesn't isn't just about a building and the people that come to the building, it has a sense of identity and place. Mm-hmm. Like God has placed your church in the midst of a physical community with a radius around it, not just whoever logs into your website right. or anyone who might show up, whatever. Not that those don't matter, but you have your first identities where, where God has placed you. That was good. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna fry. Oh, we're, we're doing great just, over here. We have a little uh, flood from uh, from my. Uh, I just got a very very my I I speak with my hands. <laughs> that was a good. That the, was a for flip. Those, <laughs> too. I know. For those listening, Jonathan just flipped his pen, pen yeah. and it took out a water cup. Yeah. In a, in a with a lot of electrical devices around us, but it went off the off the okay. side where there's no water, no devices. <laughs> but I think that parish mentality is kind of what you're modeling. You have a deep sense of place and understanding. Yeah, and I, I you know, I think the challenge is for a lot of you know pastors um, in an area and, and in ministry. You you both know how 
competitive in some sense mm-hmm. that it can be and how small church pastors are always constantly dealing with that, the mm-hmm. feeling of, you know, I'm, I haven't been successful because, you know, I don't have that many people that attend on a Sunday and they look at their success as a ministry based on the attendance of who's in that building at that particular time. Well, I I stopped doing that, um, not because it wasn't important, but because I realized that our footprint was bigger than what was going on inside of that building on a Sunday mm-hmm. morning. Mm-hmm. And all the school parents and families we were ministering to, all of the people in the community that you know we were touching in, in many different ways, those became part of our church. I looked at them as part of our family, even though they didn't, they didn't even think they were. Mm-hmm. I, I began to just look at the whole community as part of our church. Um, instead of trying to be overcome by, you know, the attendance numbers, I started seeing God do stuff that was just really, really cool um, mm-hmm. outside of that. Mm-hmm. And then we did see those numbers change. Right. We did see the numbers change, but we've never but, spent a lot of time. Sec- they really are secondary. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They became a secondary thing, and and then, you know, God miraculously funded stuff for us. I, I can't even. It's you know, I you know was telling Lisa one of the things that I love talking about is just what God has done mm-hmm. that only God could do. Um, just the miraculously funding things. Our connection to big businessmen um, in the in the Phoenix area who saw what we were doing and said, "Yeah, we want to give you money." Um, that was God. It was it was like a Nehemiah cupbearer to the king mm-hmm. kind of thing. You know, what do you need? I mean, I, I remember going into an office of a guy with one of the guys in our church, and, and that's exactly what he asked. He goes, "What do you need?" That's what, beautiful. What wow. do you need? And and I, we're both just kind of shocked. Okay, how do we answer that? Mm-hmm. Do we tell him really what we need and see what happens, or <laughs> or do little numbers, right? You know, smaller right. numbers. And we we dropped out size pieces. Yes, yeah. yeah. We dropped out some big numbers, and it didn't phase him. Yeah. Well, I think people want to be a part of a big vision. Yes. People like that, right? Like I okay, that you can do that over here, but. Let's talk about this. Yeah. One of the things I, I so appreciate what you're saying is it's not about numbers. I think we in the, the church at large, we have measured success by numbers. Mm-hmm. How many people are attending? And to your point, we are looking at it now going, it's not numbers, it's impact. Right. Yeah. What is the impact mm-hmm. we can have? In our, and so even we're designing our ministries at our church going, what is the impact? Not the, the numbers. And to your point, you've demonstrated that. It's like it's the impact a church can have in a community a small church or any size church. It's not limited. God is not limited. He's just looking for people that say yes. Yep. And so then to each one of us sitting on the table and our listeners, what is the impact each one of us can have in our own community mm-hmm. that God has divinely put, put us in a right. place, right? Whether it's in our, our own neighborhoods or it's in our, our workplaces, but are we asking God to like be a part, use me to have impact, to be a part of change and transformation? It's well, a good challenge. I, I liked – I was listening in on some of your conversation previously and talking about just the parts of the body. And and I think people have to find that, mm-hmm. that we can't be all things. 
you just have to be good at what you are. Mm-hmm. And I, that was something that was, you know, really kind of freeing to me is that I could just be who I was and that God would, would take that and build people around that personality and who who we became. And that's the church became that serving, loving, mm-hmm. kind personality to the community. Mm-hmm. I think, Jonathan, in the ministry that you've been involved in over the years, all the different things, sometimes though, you find yourself asking your question, can we really make a difference? It's overwhelming, the needs. It, it is. And I've been, you know, I was a pastor for on and off for seven, ten, you know, seven to ten years. And I just know when the attendance, the, the Sunday after Easter, oh, yeah. you know, when half the church is it's less than half of who was there the week before, mm-hmm. and you're like, what's wrong with me? Or you just, right. or you're, but, you know, you're looking at budgets. I, I get that pressure. But I do think over you know when you over time over the years God's given me more of a vision like you're saying measuring transformation, looking to see God at work rather than measuring some other variable that really isn't that is is secondary. Mm-hmm. So well, I, I we could talk church strategy. I just love talking with us with you. But I just really appreciate you coming in. Oh, and you're being on you're very welcome. And uh, just as we kind of close out our time, what do you want to just encourage our listeners? And how do they find you? Uh, we're at uh, 2020 East Baseline Road. You can go to our website at sglife.org. Um, it has there all, pretty much what we do in our school, 91st Psalm Christian School. It's uh, pre-K through 12th grade. We've been plugging away since 1987 right there. Wow. Ministering to kids. I have have 180-something kids right now um, from pre-K to high school, and that's where we are. God bless you and your ministry, Andrew. Thank you so much for being on oh, Counterculture. Thanks for your impact. Oh, my, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. Counterculture is made possible by Amplify Peace, educating, immersing, training, and launching peacemakers to build united communities. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.